All right, folks, we're going to hear from Pastor Daniel tonight, and uh, before we do, I just want to take a moment to pray uh, over Daniel and just over this time. So would you bow your heads with me as we get ready to pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this night, and um, Lord, for the opportunity here to hear from Pastor Daniel the things you've put upon his heart to share. Lord, it was just about a month ago, he was in Ohio. And here he is now in northwest Iowa, and um, Lord, we're thankful for he and Sarah both. We ask a blessing upon them tonight. And Lord, I just uh, recognize that the, the process of, of finding the next youth pastor, uh, Lord, how your hand was upon that entire process, and you've brought us Pastor Daniel, and we thank you for that. And Lord, tonight as he shares, I pray you'd touch his lips and uh, just anoint this pulpit, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless us tonight as we lean in, most importantly, to Christ and your word, and we just thank you for this time, Lord. We lift it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Can everyone hear me? Come on. Okay, cool. So let me get situated here. Well, I am delighted and humbled to be given this opportunity to speak for the first time in front of you all. Um, I never take for granted the opportunity to share God's word, um, the importance of this book, uh, what it can do in each of our lives um, is, is overwhelming in and of itself, but the opportunity to share from it is an extra privilege. Um, so tonight, obviously, I'm going to walk us through one of the many texts of scriptures that deals with thanks, thankfulness or gratitude. And though this is uh, obviously a theme-based message, um, based on the time of year we're uh, going into, I believe that this is something that we could take with us 365 days of the year. The, the, the principles from scripture um, apply all the time to everyone, and uh, that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, so when thinking about thankfulness, I, I want us to just pause really quick and think about that word and what it means, the essence of what thankfulness and or gratitude actually is. And, and when I say that, I, I mean when it applies to how we think of it, Put yourself at the center of it, and I'm more talking about the internal posture of one's innermost being, a.k.a. the heart. I care about the heart. So when we think about thankfulness, what does your heart think about this word? Uh, I came up with my own definition, and I'm a words guy, so I went to the dictionary too. Um, this is what the dictionary had to say about what it means to be thankful. The dictionary said, conscious benefit or conscious of benefit received, expressive of thanks, well-pleased, glad. Uh, some other synonyms are grateful, relieved, obliged, indebted, or beholden. I found that interesting. This was Daniel's definition. This is the, the definition of thankfulness I came up with. So when I think of it, I think of it as the realization, 
So you recognize that it's there. The realization that something has been given or something that has happened to me that has brought about a benefit or overall sense of well-being or peace that I necessarily didn't expect or deserve. That's what I think thankfulness is. When I, when I stop and ponder, what does it mean to be thankful? What's that embodied like? That's the definition I think of. And there's other definitions that could be applied, but <clears throat> the opposite, sometimes the best way to define something as well is to know what it's not. And uh, the opposite of thankfulness, one of the words I guess you could say is entitlement, which I looked up that definition and it says, belief that one is deserving or entitled to certain privileges. So thankfulness and entitlement don't, really happen at the same time. So where I'm going with this is how does this idea of thankfulness, the the definition I just gave above or the dictionary definition or whatever definition of it that you want to even apply to it, how does this apply to us? And by us, I mean the household of faith, believers, people who've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because, you know, those of us who would say, yes, I'm following Jesus because he saved me and cleansed me from my sin. Um, he's brought me from darkness to light, like we just sang, from death to life. If that's you, if you can say that about yourself, well, one of the truest and purest marks that that is true of you and that what other people view you as, and they're like, oh yeah, this person follows Jesus. One of the truest marks that this is true is that you will have thankfulness. You will Manifest that in your words, your thoughts, your motives, and your actions. Uh, Just this past week, I was having a discussion with some folks about this dichotomy of duty versus delight. And, you you know, so I guess we could even take tomorrow, for example, like, oh, I got to go to this person's house. Oh, we got to go see these people. And it's like, okay, just put a smile on and like Nike says, just do it. And then there's the delight aspect of it, right? Even on a holiday like tomorrow, you have delight and it can turn into duty. Or you can have a duty and it can turn into a delight. So for example, when I was in the children's ministry for 18 months, I was like, hmm, don't know if I want to do this, but I'll do it because it's, I'm serving the Lord. But it's funny how if it's of God and it's from God and it's the will of God, he tends to soften your heart towards those things that you thought of as a duty. He, they become a delight. And so I'm happy to say that um, serving the K through 6 turned into a delight for me. And at the end of that stint, I was able and privileged to lead a VBS of 120 plus kids and 60 to 70 volunteers uh, to help me with that. And it was, it was just a testament of God doing exactly that in my heart. Um, softening it to the point that a duty became a delight. So, this brings us to the scriptures. Obviously, I'm here to preach the Bible. No one wants to hear what I have to say. What does God have to say? So, if you have your Bibles, I'm not sure if you do, but if you do, turn to Colossians chapter 3. You better. (laughs) Colossians chapter 3 is where we'll be. And to start, I'm only going to read the first four verses. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, 
say this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now just reading that face value, at least for me, when I read this passage, it applies in so many different ways right off the bat and it convicts me at least. Maybe the same is true for you. But let's, I'm going to uh, draw a few implications from this, these four f- few verses and how it relates to <clears throat> thankfulness. And we've already sung so many great truths in the songs that we um, a few minutes ago sang that are going to be repeated and you're going to see a theme here. Implication number one, and I formed it in uh, a question. You have to start with the first phrase then. If then you have been raised with Christ. So the question is this. Have you been raised with Christ? Paul's audience in this text is not to just everybody. So I have to ask the same question of you guys. Are you raised with Christ? Nothing else that I say after this point or what Paul says after this point applies because the audience to which this passage is speaking to are those in the household of faith. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, and by the way, I'll be jumping all over the scriptures, so don't feel like you have to turn and race with me to go to these passages. You can just listen. Um, I don't have slides this evening, but that's okay. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 6 say this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, now catch this, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the point of us dying with Christ and being raised with him again. We are As 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, new creations in him, the old is gone, the new has come. Is that true of you? If there's nothing else that you hear from me tonight and you have yet to make that true of yourself, take this opportunity of all nights to make that decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Second implication from the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3 is this question, what are you seeking? It says, seek the things that are above. We're all seeking something. Our hearts are naturally inclined to want and desire things and to fulfill them and satisfy them. But what are you seeking? As believers, I would hope it is the things that are above. Again, a cross-reference from Luke chapter 12, verses 29 through 34 say this. I, I tend to use scripture to interpret scripture a lot. That's, I feel like you can't put it any better than what God's already said in a different place. So that's why I'm doing this. But Luke chapter 12, verses 29 through 34 say, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. I hate how it says that in the scripture because I'm so tempted to worry. I'm so tempted to be anxious by life, by all the stresses that can and do come our way. The scriptures are trying to exhort us to not worry. 
Verse 30 in chapter 12 of Luke says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. One, you know, the mark that I said, thankfulness, that should be a true mark that we're different. We're set apart. Another way this manifests itself is that we don't seek after the things the world seeks after. Money, fame, pleasure, whatever it might be. We should not be seeking these same things. We should be seeking the things that are heavenly. In verse 32, Jesus goes further in Luke chapter 12. He says, fear not, little flock. And I find that endearing until I realize he's calling me a sheep and I'm no farmer, but I know that they're not very smart. I know this because I have YouTube. <laughs> so fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And Russ spoke on in Hebrews talking about this kingdom as well. And I, I love how this verse is saying the same thing. Like, just think about that. Stop and think as a, as a believer, if this is you, we don't need to worry because we have something so much better and valuable. He, he wants to give us the kingdom, his kingdom. I used to work at Chick-fil-A and you would have to get into the habit of saying my pleasure after somebody says thanks. Like no matter what, it was just like ingrained in your brain. Even when you quit that job, you, you end up saying like my pleasure and it gets ridiculous. And so like at Thanksgiving, it would be like, hey Daniel, can you pass me the gravy? Yeah, here you go. Thanks. My pleasure. Like, and it has to have like that southern like draw. I don't know why, because maybe it's Chick-fil-A originated in Atlanta, Georgia. But Jesus is genuinely saying it's, it's his pleasure. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you this kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, it says. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So again, I ask, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Again, we go further in the text, and it says, set your minds on things that are above. So same idea, except now it's incorporating the mind. And don't worry, I'll get to the aspect of where Christ is seated. I'll get to that in a moment. But I want to focus on the mind right now. I don't know about you guys, um, but these last three plus years uh, have been extremely challenging uh, when it comes to setting my focus, my mind, my attention, my affection, and my emotions on what it should be focused upon, which is namely Jesus Christ himself. Instead, there just seems to be so much ample opportunity to just allow my mind to drift into the currents of cultural thought that easily take your thoughts captive to emotion, not Christ, and feeds you a steady diet of negativity and despair. I mean, we can all name things. All you have to do is turn on the TV or go on the internet or even talk to your neighbors sometimes. There's so much going on in our world that you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on, Lord? What are we setting our minds on? I, I, for me, for myself, I can't do that. I have to turn off everything because I start to doubt. I start to grumble. I start to complain. And I don't focus on the things that I need to be focused on, especially when it comes to eternity. Yes, there's going to be problems. Yes, there's tribulation. Jesus says, I've overcome this world. 
Why don't we focus on that detail instead of the news cycle? So when it comes to politics, wars, Christian infighting, social media debates which don't do anything for anyone, get rid of it if it's causing you to sin, dare I say. And that's just the half of it. I mean, when you talk about setting your minds on things, sometimes we get distracted. There's so many distractions in our life. The prayer that was said up here said it best. We, 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 we just, we look at things and we're like, ooh, shiny, and we go towards it at a moment's notice and it's like, no, 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 no. That has no value comparatively to what Jesus is offering you. A, like, salvation for one, peace with God, eternal life, and a kingdom. I, I, I don't, they, they don't compare, in other words. So again, I ask, what are you setting your mind on? And we're not perfect. I understand that. Let's get to where Christ is, though. Because this is also encouraging. If there's something to be thankful about, it's, I think, this, too. You know, verse, two says, or verse 1 says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So where is he? Where do we, where do we, where do we know that he is? Yeah. Yes, that says it right there. What does this mean? What does this signify? Number one, he's seated, which means he's in a posture of completion. When you're seated, seated you're, you're done. You're, you're, you're resting, as it were. So when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, in other words, his work was done and God the Father put a stamp of approval on Jesus' work on that cross by raising him from the dead. And now he is enthroned at the right hand of God. And that gets to my second point. The second thing, this where Jesus is right now thing, it means this, that he's in a position of authority as well. Two verses that back this up. I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. Hebrews 10, 12 through 13 says, But when Christ had offered for a single time, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I don't know if that encourages you, but it encourages me. Because when I look at this world and all this stuff that I could complain about, it, it wipes away those fears. Yes, I'm living in this life. Yes, I'm living in the here and now but I could set my gaze and set my eyes and set my mind on what is to come and the, the little dot of eternity that is right now. Like, that's nothing to be, to be compared to what's to come. Matthew 28, a lot of people know this passage. It's the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he, Jesus says this, though, at the beginning of this. And Jesus came and said to them, them being the disciples, all authority... And in the Greek, all means all. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Period. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Does that encourage you, church? All authority. So when we seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand and we set our minds on the things above, not on things that are on the earth, I hope that in this, these facts that it produces thankfulness. I know it does in me. Verse 3, Paul appeals to our identity once again for the calls of reason of why we should have a pattern of thankfulness in our lives. Verse 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
Again, the audience to which he's talking are believers. And again, in verse 3, Paul appeals to this identity. And he's, and he's reminding them who they are and whose they are. I think of when it says you've been hidden with Christ in God. I, the picture that comes to my mind, and it doesn't do it justice, is an eclipse when the sun goes in, like directly in front of the moon or vice versa, the moon blocks out the sun. That's like our relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's so close, closer even than that illustration. But when people see us, they should see God. I pray that that's true. Again, not perfectly. Ephesians chapter 1 summarizes verses 1 through 4 of Colossians, I think, perfectly. Listen to this. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says this. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Pretty much everything we just said in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians, that summarizes it right there in Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, so all this theoretical head knowledge, okay, you should have this attitude, this attitude, this attitude. Okay, that's great. Daniel, but what do I do with this practically speaking in life application? Well, Paul goes on in chapter 3 with some application. And you can categorize it in two kind of um, things. One, the first, he goes in verses 5 through 9 telling us what to put off. And then verses 10 through 7 or 12 through 17, what to put on. So the putting off of things and then the putting on of different things. And I'm not going to go through everything in the lists here in verses 5 through 9. I'm not even going to read it. You can read it on your own. But I do want to point out a couple things or key phrases within verses 5 through 9. It says at the beginning of verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then it gives a list. Mortification of the flesh is the Christian's job. It's, it's part of sanctification, being made more into the likeness of Jesus. And it's, it's, it's progressive. It's sometimes very slow. It's grueling. We have highs and lows. Sometimes when we feel like we're getting somewhere, we fall back. But the Lord's faithful in that. And to the extent that you put, what it, put to death what is earthly in you, to, that's the extent to which you will be made more like Christ. There is a responsibility within that. Verse 8 says, you must put them all away. And it gives another list. Verse 10 says, and have put on the new self, putting on the new self like clothes, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. And this is, and difficult to do, like the putting off and the putting on, because, like I said, we're still in the presence or proximity of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. Once and for all, Jesus died on the cross. We're being saved from the power of sin progressively in our lives. If you're a true believer, the power that sin has over you 
10 years ago should not be the same as it was today. And therefore, in the future, it should have less of a hold on you as you go. But we're still in this life and we're still in this flesh. Unfortunately, till we get to heaven, we will never be rid completely of this thing called sin that wants to cling tightly to us. We have to put this off and it takes exerted effort and intention to do so. But it's not like we're doing it alone either. Jesus helps us in and through that. So who does the work of sanctification? You or the Lord? Yes. That's the answer. Both. Now verses 10 to 17 or 12 to 17, this is a list I do want to go through because it's good application and good practical things that we can try to do in our lives to have thankfulness. And to show it too, by the way. It's not like I'm thankful and I'm not going to show it towards it. No, it's a natural outflow. If you truly have genuine thankfulness and gratitude in your life, it will be obvious to others around you. Everyone knows when they go around someone, they're like, "Mm, no, they're like a humbug. Not going to be around them. Nobody likes that. At least I don't. And I hope I'm not that towards others too. But it says this in Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That was a command. Hmm. You must also forgive. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And here it is, title bomb, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In verse 12, if we back up to that, Paul appeals again to our identity. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's like encouraging us. He's like, yeah, you're chosen, but you're, you're holy and beloved. Holy being set apart, meaning being set apart, and you're beloved. I know for me, I need to be reminded of this because I tend, my personality is one that tends towards despair and shame and guilt. It's just how I've been wired so when I need, when I need encouragement, I, I need verses like this to help me. Like, oh yeah, no matter what I do today, tomorrow, or the next day, I, I'm beloved because I'm in Jesus. Again, it's that identity. And then it goes through that list again of humility, compassionate hearts, and meekness. And I was perplexed by this word meekness. Again, I like definitions. And I couldn't quite come up with one myself, so I cheated and I looked one up. What is meekness? Meekness is the willingness to suffer injury or insult rather than be the one to inflict those insults upon others. Meekness produces a mildness in our demeanor and humility in our spirit. Meekness does not grasp for ways to overpower others or seek to be overbearing. There's a gentle, somewhat submissive quality to a person who is meek. And immediately you should all think of Jesus. This was Jesus. He submitted himself to become like us in human form. 
He veiled his, his power and his divinity somewhat when he walked amongst us to be beaten, spit upon, rejected, scorned, and ultimately killed. That's meekness. The God of the universe who had angels praising him day and night, 24-7, did this for us. Verse 13, when it says, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you so must also forgive. That's a tough one. That's a huge one. That's a massive one. If we try to apply this correctly as the Bible says. So many problems in churches, so many problems within friendships and family relationships stem from the lack of forgiveness that we are giving each other. And I was talking to Pastor Russ um, just this past week about this idea, about how forgiveness, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is the relinquishing or releasing the other person from what they've done to you. And let me just say that this is in your control. No matter what has happened to you, or what's been done to you, you are able, by God's power, through the Holy Spirit, in grace and mercy, to do that for someone else. Even if they're gone, you can still do this. Because if you hold on to unforgiveness, it turns to bitterness. And bitterness and thankfulness cannot happen at the same time. And at the very least, it'll be a horrible testimony to those outside looking in. And this is a bare minimum, I would say, too. Forgiveness is the bare minimum. Yes, we should forgive, and it's commanded, just as the Lord's forgiven us, right? But I believe that the ultimate goal is that second word. Reconciliation is the ultimate goal. That's a reestablishment and restoration completely of a relationship to what it was once before. That's what Jesus came to do, is to reconcile us to God. In the garden, we had intimacy with, with the Lord, Adam walked and talked with the Lord in the garden and then he fell and subsequently so did all of us. And Jesus coming to die on the cross and saving us from our sins and rising from the dead, that whole thing right there was to reconcile us. If you need to do that, I pray that you do. It frees you at the very least of turning into someone who is downcast, bitter, and angry all the time. And it's not easy you need help of the Lord. You need help maybe of others around you to encourage you and to walk you through what that looks like. And there's no guarantee that reconciliation will happen. That's the scariest part too. Verse 14, above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, love is used in so many ways in our lives. I say I love popcorn, and then I say I love Jesus in like the next sentence. So what does the Bible say about love? What does it talk, like there's many, 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 many verses, obviously. Here's just a few. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And then again, it goes even further with a description of what love is. In John chapter 15, it says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So even that is for our benefit. 
And then it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what I think Paul is ultimately getting at here. Do we love one another, truly? It's hard. (laughs) I pray that the Lord gives us each the grace to extend the grace that we've been given by the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. See, all these things that I've talked about up to this point, if we latch onto these truths, these heart postures, these attitudes, these places where we can get our minds fixated on Christ and his cross and what he's done for us, the natural overflow will be gratitude. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of God dwelling in you richly. I think of Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 is the first passage of scripture I ever memorized. And it talks about two different types of people, the blessed man and the wicked man. But I'm I'm thinking more so of the beginning part of Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then it says the, the result of doing that. What's the result of somebody who meditates on God's word day and night? Well, it says, He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. I pray that that's me, but we have to be in the word to have that happen all the time. We can't get enough of what God wants us to live like and be like and to focus our gaze on him. If anything, the word of God gets my eyes focused back on the things that matter. I know I'm repeating that again and again, but it's so true and we so need it. And then Paul, he just has to put, put singing in here. What, what better way to show that we are thankful than to sing, than to make melody with our hearts to God? An ingrateful or an unthankful person doesn't truly sing. Not truly. You can sing words or sing a tune, but it comes from the innermost being. True, genuine singing and worship and that's the point. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we have to sound great. Just, just sing. Praise the Lord. Give him the worth due his name. And then verse 17, finally, Paul kind of just throws everything else in there that he doesn't specifically mention here by name. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks always to God the Father through him. You know, studying the word is great. Knowing theology and knowing about God is amazing. But theology needs to become doxology, a.k.a. worship, praise, adoration. 
The point of theology is to get you to understand the God in whom you are worshiping and to know him better and to let him know you better. Psalms is one of my favorite books of the Bible for obvious reasons. David just knows how to pour his heart out to God. And he gives us an example, and this is what I'll close with. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 4 say this. He's pretty much putting everything into practice I just mentioned. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Let's pray. O high and holy one that inhabits eternity, you are to be feared and loved by all your servants. All your works praise you, O God. And we especially give thanks unto you for your marvelous love in Christ Jesus, by whom you have reconciled the world to yourself. You have given us exceeding great and precious promises, and you have sealed them with your blood. You have confirmed them by his resurrection and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given us so many happy opportunities of knowing the truth as it is in Jesus, even the mystery which was hid from ages and generations, but now is revealed to them who believe. Lord, we just thank you for this night, God. I pray that the heart posture of each of us is one of true gratitude and true joy, true peace, true thankfulness. Thank you by your spirit. We don't take for granted everything you've given us, everything you've done for us. Help us to live lives that are representations of this truth so that many more will come to a saving knowledge of your son. We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen.